Amen. What's up? Everybody good? All right. Three people live today in the room. That's awesome. Hey, uh, you know that first song that we sang? I I love that line. You took what the enemy meant for evil and you used it for good. You turned it for good. And the enemy has a plan right now in our nation, right, to divide us, um, to make us hate each other across gender, across race, and all that, all that other kind of garbage, you know, and, and sometimes we wonder, hey, what can we do, right? Well, I, I left a slide. Remember I said I had a slide from last week? This is Steve's uh, uh, fancy slides, and, and, uh, and, and here's part of the answer, right? The greater the number of disciples of Jesus in our world equals greater peace in our world. <clears throat> Jesus is a peacemaker, right? So what can you do? Uh, you get to know, have a relationship with lost people, you bring them to Jesus and you encourage them to act like Jesus. You know, you know, the enemy wants evil to happen in our country. You know, but if the church, if we, God's people, decide to live like God's people and don't run to the left and camp there, don't run for the right and camp there, if we're going to take a stand, let's take a stand with Jesus and the gospel and grace and then let's see what happens, right? It would be so awesome to see the enemy's plans just spoiled to see the church rise up, right, and truly make this country one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. All right, so I, I love that song. He can do that. It's okay to clap, Courtney. I know you're excited about that. Woo! All right. Hey, you know, th- this week, for some reason, I-, I started thinking about this question, like, hey, what are the 10 most well-known and most quoted verses in the Bible? Like anything else, you can go online, and you can Google it and find a list. You can find a lot of lists, and I did, and and they were mostly the same, but there was nothing very distinctive. Then I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to make my own list of what I think are the 10 most quoted and the 10 most well-known verses in the Bible. And the reason that these verses are quoted and well-known is because not only do they give us hope, comfort, and encouragement, but they, they also they give us direction in our lives. Now, my list has three Old Testament and seven New Testament verses the number three and the number seven are two of my all-time favorite numbers. Three represents the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and seven uh, represents completion. When I do margins in my notes, I always use numbers like that. You know, it's either a 12 for the 12 tribes. It's one for there's one God. It's three because of the Trinity. It's seven because it's completion. And I cannot, I'm seriously, I cannot not do that, right? If I make like just one as a margin, it's like I got to stop. I just, you know, anyhow, you needed to know that. And, and, and here's, here's what I want us to do. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the verse, and, and then um, I'm going to want you guys to either type in if you're watching online or to shout out if you're in this room, once I'm done with the verse, what the address is, okay? And by address, I mean book, chapter, and verse, all right? So here's what I think of the top 10. So once I'm done reading, you get to shout it out. And, and again, before we go on, just remember that, that these words are, that they're, they're God-breathed, right? Um, um, therefore, they're alive and active. And here's the deal. If, when I read some of these verses, if they, like, if one of them really speaks to where you are right now, it's not an accident, you know? It's not an accident. If it's something you need to hear right now, just know that God put it on my list because it's what God wants to speak into your life at this very moment. And you can see the first one. Some of you are all ready to go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. Proverbs 3, 5. 
Good job. All right, here's the next one. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Philippians 4, 6. Good job. All right. Don't be shy. There are wrong answers. Okay. <laughs> Here's the next one. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, here's something. Romans 8, 28. All right, good. We're doing good so far. Here's a famous one right here. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. I, I heard you, Democles. You know that one. Here's the next one. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. All right. Here's a tough one here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's a good one. Of course, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. All right. Thank you at home on the couch there. Good job, Ephesians 2.8. Nice job. Appreciate that. All right. Here's the next one. Uh, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 40, 31. Good job. Good job. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10, 10. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Anybody know that one? John 14, verse 6. Good job. And, and you know what? Just... Just hearing those words, seriously, like, I did. I did feel his life being breathed into my inner being. And that last verse, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, is the, is the, is the words that, that I want to drill down this morning as we continue in, in our series, Name Above All Names, a, a series that's all about you and I getting to know better Jesus, the one we have chosen to follow. And, and I think... Knowing Jesus is the most, no, I don't think, I know that knowing Jesus is the most important and crucial thing in your life at all times, but especially in times like today. And don't forget that Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And eternal life, uh, it means not just as in forever, but as in life. This is life, and for life forever, but this is life full and abundant that you know God. Knowing Jesus is where life happens. And, and listen, since April the 26th, that's what we've been trying to do, trying to get to know Jesus better by unpacking some of the names of Jesus in Scripture, names that are intended to help us anchor and shape our lives. Remember, Jesus is the Word become flesh. He is he is mighty God, Emmanuel. He is the good shepherd, the prince of peace, the lamb of God. He is the head of the body, the bridegroom of the bride, the vine of the branches, and he is the cornerstone of the building. And this morning, we're going to look at the three titles for Jesus that literally burst out of John chapter 14, verse 6. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, We need you. God, thank you for your word that refreshes and renews and encourages us and guides and directs us and comforts us. And God, I just pray that right now that we pray our hearts and minds for your truth. Holy Spirit, help us to hear what you want us to hear. Help me to say what you want me to say in the way that you want me to say it. And my hope and trust and confidence is in you, Lord, in your word and in your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think that most of us know and have heard John 14, verse 6 before. And, and, and as we begin our deep dive into this text, I, I, I want us to, to see that verse in its context, right? Like, why does Jesus say these words? Who does he say them to, right? Um, where is he when he says these words? And like, what's going on? What's the environment when he says these words? Okay, let's do it. So it's Thursday night, and Jesus, he's in the upper room with his disciples, celebrating the Passover meal, a meal that Jesus had celebrated for about 30 years. The Passover meal was a time where they both remembered and celebrated when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Question, have you ever wondered what it was like for Jesus as a teenager to celebrate the Passover every year, knowing that one day that he would be the Passover lamb? And have you ever wondered what Jesus thought if When he walked in Jerusalem one day and he looked off to the side of the road and he saw someone hanging on the cross dying, knowing that one day it would be his body that would be pierced. Again, tonight he's in the upper room with his disciples. And during the last three years, they have had a lot of meals together, probably hundreds of meals, but this would be the last one. This would be the last supper before Jesus would go to the cross and before they would flee into the night of leaving him all by himself. And as they sat in the room, I, I think, the, I think the, the mood was somber. I think they were anxious. I think they were uncertain. I think the emotions were high on edge and intense, and not just in the hearts, in the hearts of the disciples, but also in the hearts of Jesus, who, who actually said in John chapter 12, verse 27, right after predicting his death, here's what Jesus said. Now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me for what's coming. Save me from the cross. Save me from the beatings. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And listen, the, the last few days, man, have been just a flood of emotional events, right? I mean, entering Jerusalem surrounded by thousands who are shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's that, then there's that scene at, in Bethany that night when, when, when Mary took a, a jar of expensive perfume worth a year's, year's wages and poured it on Jesus' feet. And, and Jesus said, she did this to prepare me for burial. And then he added these discomforting words. You will not always have me with you. And then two days before the Passover, in, in Matthew 26, verse 2, Jesus said, he says, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man must be crucified. And then there's Jesus going into the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and shouting out, is it not written that my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations? But you turn into the den of robbers. And then, then those powerful showdowns that Jesus had with the religious leaders, those hypocrites, saying such things to them as, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You're like whitewashed tombs. By the way, that's not a compliment, right? Which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Understand, as they began to recline that night in the upper room, the emotions of the last few days hung heavy over their hearts. And then what happens and what's said in that upper room just ignited a new flood of emotions. I mean, first we have Jesus, their Lord, their Messiah, getting up, wrapping a towel around his waist, bending down and washing their feet, telling them that not every one of you is clean and one of you will betray me. And then each in turn they say with downcast faces, surely not I. And then Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this Cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Understand, you know, the Lord's Supper, right? First time, you know, no doubt stirred many emotions within the disciples. And then we read beginning in John 13, verse 31. When he was gone, Judas, he's gone, right? The betrayer's gone. Now Jesus is getting down to some real business with his guys. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right? If the Millions of Christians in our country actually love one another. Maybe our world would look a little bit different. Maybe our nation would look a little bit different. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but now, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. I mean, just try to imagine what you'd be feeling right now if you're one of those guys in that room. I mean, how would you be feeling? Hey, Jesus is going away. One of them is a betrayer. That Peter, the strong and bold one, is actually deny even knowing Jesus. I think you'd probably be, I know I would feel troubled and confused and afraid and sad and uncertain and fearful and depressed and panicked and overwhelmed, numb and paralyzed. Have you ever felt that way? Understand, it's into this flood of not so much fun emotions that Jesus says to them and to us, whenever we're at the same place, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, the word troubled is the Greek word terasso, terasso. I actually think I got that one right, maybe. Uh, and it means to be stirred or agitated. You ever been stirred or agitated? It means to cause an inward commotion like calm waters that start to churn. It means to be overcome with uncertainty, to be intimidated by the situation, to be restless, anxious, distressed. 
And my favorite, it means to disturb one's equanimity. Equanimity. I've never heard that word before. I can't wait to play hangman now with this sucker, right? You know, equanimity. That's actually a word. Mental or emotional stability. Uh, you got it? <laughs> Are you st- or composure, especially under tension or stress. So that word trouble means you're disturbing someone's equanimity, their emotional and mental stability, their composure. Let not your hearts be stirred. Let not your hearts be agitated. Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, Jesus, I, I hear what you're saying, but, but how do I do it? Believe in God. Believe also in me. And, and in other words, Jesus wanted them and wanted us to know that whatever we are facing, whatever is causing us to be stirred and agitated and overwhelmed and troubled, that he and the Father, they got it. They can handle it. They can deal with it, Right? They have our backs. Like, seriously, think about it. If God is who, he, who we say he is, and if God is who the scripture proclaim that he is, then I think they really do have it covered, right? I mean, like, is anything too hard for the star-breathing, ocean-holding God? Believe in Jesus. Believe in God. Let's not let our hearts be tarassoed. <laughs> Let's keep our equanimity. My father's house are many rooms. Whose house? Our father's house. And it's a great big house with lots and lots of rooms, with a great big yard where we can play football. It's my father's house. <laughs> okay. You know, know what I discovered this week? I thought it was pretty, I didn't know. You know how many times that Jesus uses the word father on that Thursday night? John 14 through 17, 53 times. 53, crazy. And do you know, you know what that expression, in my father's house are many rooms, means? you know what it really means? It means that there is a place for you. That's what it means. And, and see, the, the best thing about the father's house is not the place, but the person. It's being with the father. It's finally being home. And whenever we're in a dark and difficult circumstance, we need, and our heart is feeling trouble, we need to remind ourselves that we are not home yet. You see, every one of us lives not only with this deep hunger to go home, but this very, very uh, clear realization that we're not there yet. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he talked about this, this desire that are often and mostly unsatisfied hearts have for home. He, he said this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And his argument is this, that if, if money and power and success and applause and pleasure do not provide our hearts with with a home, with peace, and with rest, then maybe we're designed for something greater than those things. Maybe we're designed to live in a different place. Amen? Amen. And here's the deal. More of, what you already, more of what you already have or already doing that is not bringing you satisfaction is never going to bring you satisfaction, right? More of what you already have 
or already doing that ain't working is never going to work, right? It's just not. I think you know that. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I will take you to myself. You see, this is, this is where he shifts from the focus from a place to a person, right? Where Jesus is, there is heaven, right? And, and, and what is the essence of heaven? It's the immediate presence of Jesus, right? It's about a person. He continues, and you know the way to where I'm going? And Thomas said to him, I got to say that despite you know, all his critics and his not so uh, complimentary nickname, right, Downing Thomas, I love this guy, right? I love his honesty. I love his boldness. I love that he's willing to say out loud and risk looking dumb, asking the same question that everybody else is thinking, but he's going to go ahead and ask it, right? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus, we don't know where you're going. And how could we know? You're always talking in riddles and stuff. We don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Listen, I I think underneath that question, we don't know where to go, is this much bigger and deeper question that is weighing heavily on the heart of Thomas. Jesus, can you get us home? Can, can you take us to that place where our hearts will finally and fully be at rest and at peace? Jesus, I want to go home. Can you take us home? And here's the deal. When life is hard and crazy, and when it's dark and uncertain, difficult and troubled, we need to remember that we're going home. Home to this incredible forever with God. Home to this place that we were always intended to live. And so Jesus answers Thomas' question with those 10 incredibly powerful words. I'm so glad he was bold enough to ask the question so that we have the answer, right? How do I get home? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, that's the outline for the rest of the conversation, right? Not very creative, but it's how Jesus gets us home. Let's talk about how Jesus gets us home. Anybody want to go home? I, I do. Jesus is the way to God. Now understand, Jesus is the only one who can save us from our slavery to sin and to death, right? And let me try to unpack that. You see, the great chasm between you and home, between you and rest, between you and soul-level communion with Christ, your soul-level communion with Christ is not more money, not, not a better job, not, not another town, not, not more success, and not a better relationship, not a better or more you fill in the blank. Instead, the great chasm that robs you of home is sin and death. Understand, sin and death is what separates you from home. And I know that we live in a day and time where people have no patience and little tolerance with that kind of language. I mean, who is anyone to tell anyone that something is sin? But understand, when we do that, we actually erode the very humanity from under us. I mean, how do we explain What is wrong with us if we don't have this language? How how do we explain what is good and and what is bad if there is no good and bad? But it's just whatever we we decide. Uh, Again, the chasm that separates 
you from home is sin and death, and Jesus is the way home. Jesus bridges that chasm. Now, earlier in the text, Jesus said, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. Question, what does that mean? Does it mean that after Jesus ascended back to the Father that he, he went to heaven's version of Lowe's and bought some building supplies, right? And like Chip Gaines is up in heaven right now, hammering away, right, tricking out your condominium. Is that what he's talking about? No, that's not what he's talking about. However, at one time, I kind of I pictured it that way. And part of the confusion I have is because some, some Bible translations insert They add a word. They add the word there, there, you know. And so it reads this way. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go there to prepare a place for you. And I thought, well, I go there. That's what you're doing. But that's, understand the word there is, it's not there, right? It's not there. And and Jesus already said what? In my father's house are blueprints, blueprints to build many rooms. No, he said, in my father's house, what? Many rooms, like the rooms are already there. So what does Jesus mean by saying that I I go to prepare a place for you? I believe what Jesus is saying is, hey, guys, I'm headed to the cross. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be tortured and brutalized and hung on that cross. And and when I do, I'm going to prepare a place for you by, by absorbing all of God's wrath towards your sin. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead and I'm going to build a bridge so that you can walk over that great chasm of sin and death that separates you from the Father and so that you can go home. You see, Jesus prepared a place for you in the Father's house through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, right? You know, you know it, it, that's what it means to prepare a place for you, right? You know, and if you ever teach, heard me teach the wrong way, it's because... I thought the wrong way, right? You know, because it's not so what it's talking about. That's what prepared it. It's not referring to some glitterly tricked out mansion in heaven somewhere waiting for you, right? And it's like, well, this, I know you got a dump, but that's all the material you sent up, right? That's not what it's talking about, right? It's not. Instead, it's talking about how through his death, through his death and resurrection, that he's finally prepared a way for you to go home. For the way you have intimacy with God, to have that communion with God that you were created to have from the very beginning. It's about getting you home. It's about being with the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father. In fact, he's the only way to the Father. I know what people think, right? Seriously, Steve? You do know it's the 21st century, right? Are you you saying that no one gets to the Father except through Jesus? Yes, I'm saying that no one gets to the Father except through Jesus. And Jesus said it first, right? Jesus said it first. And you know what? I'm not, I'm not all that upset that Jesus is the only way. I'm just pretty glad that there is a way back to the Father, right? You know? I'm, well, yeah, I'm just excited that I, that I get to go. And I do understand that Jesus' statement, no one comes to the Father except through me, I understand that it is an exclusive statement, but at the same time, it is the most inclusive Invitation ever given. No one comes to the Father except through me is the most inclusive, exclusive invitation ever, right? I mean, and what I mean by that is everyone's invited, right? Anyone, regardless of their age, their gender, their race, their background, their skin color, their past sin, their mistakes, their failures, is invited to go home. 
See, anyone at any time, right, can choose to walk on the way that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, prepared for them. Get it? And we call that good news, right? We call that the gospel. No one comes to the Father except through me. Bottom line, that's not cruel. It's not bigoted. It's loving. It's gracious. It's an invitation to go home. You see, it's, I think it's more hope than despair, that it's more openness than closeness, that it's more invitation than exclusiveness. And one more thing before we move on to Jesus is the truth of God. Remember I said Jesus used the, the word Father 53 times on that Thursday night? Again, that's a lot. Especially when you consider in the Old Testament, he only referred to God as, as Father a handful of times. And see, the reason that, that Jesus is so obsessed with the Father that Thursday night is because he was so obsessed about doing the will of the Father. He was so obsessed about going home to the Father. And he was so obsessed about preparing a way for you to go home to the Father. Jesus is the way to God. He is the truth of God. One author I read this week, I like how he worded it. Jesus is God's glorious self-disclosure of himself. Jesus is God's gracious self-disclosure of himself, right? You want to know what God looks like? Boom, there it is. It's Jesus, right? Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And he also says in that same chapter, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. In chapter 2 of that book, he says, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form. You see, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, right? And, And What do you see when you look at Jesus? You see this stunning, scandalous, unexplainable display of mercy and grace. You see this stunning, unexplainable, scandalous display of mercy and grace. I mean, we even see it in the upper room, don't we? Like, with his disciples, think about it. I mean, Jesus is on the cusp of being slaughtered on the cross. And they're like, besides arguing about who's the greatest, which they did in the upper room, right? They're like, man, I can't believe you're leaving us, Jesus. Why, why are you going? You know, I can't believe you're leaving us. It's like they didn't get anything. And yet Jesus says what? Wow. After three years with me, could you guys get any dumber? Right? That's not what he said. <laughs> That's what I probably would have said. Like, seriously, get out of here. You guys are idiots. And said he has compassion on them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Again, if you will know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at the image of the invisible God. And if you want to know how God sees you, how God feels about you, then you look at how Jesus interacted with people when he wore flesh and walked this planet. Like, like how does Jesus see? How did Jesus treat? How did Jesus respond to the woman at the well, an extremely promiscuous woman? How did he see? How did he treat? How did he respond to the woman caught in adultery? How did Jesus see? How did he respond? How did he treat the the tax collectors who were raising taxes and exploiting their own countrymen, countrymen for an oppressive regime? How did Jesus see, respond, and treat his often clueless, hard-to-get-it disciples? How did Jesus see, treat, and respond to the poor, to the weak, to the sinner, to the outcast, to the broken, and to the marginalized of his day? He encourages them. He 
speaks life into them. He touches them. He eats with them. He stands up for them. He loves them. He pours grace, mercy, and compassion out on them. And he invites them, right, to be with him and follow him. Now, later that Thursday night, actually right after Jesus said, uh, on the way, the truth, and the light, we see Jesus drilling down on this truth that if you want to know what God is like, hey, look at him. He says in verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and that will be enough for us. Remember, my grace is sufficient for me. Same word. Show us the Father, and that'll be sufficient. We won't ask for anything else. And I just think Jesus was kind of bummed here. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time? You see, you can be around Jesus and still not get it. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father? And the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Like, I raised that guy from the tomb just a few days ago. Jesus is a truth about God. About who God is. And what a truth that is. He's also, I might add, the truth of God about who you are. Listen, despite the fact that you are finite, frail, falling, and a sinner, you are so loved, you're so valued, and you matter so much to God. Amen? Listen, not only is Jesus, he's also the truth in regards to what is the truth. Not only is Jesus the truth, his word is the truth, Right? John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Therefore, Jesus and his word is the truth about what is right and what is wrong, about how we're to live, how we're to treat other people, right? What it means to be a parent, a husband, a wife, a child, a a decent person. You know, our world is so full of people's opinions and agendas. And through posts and tweets and comments, they try to sway you, right? I mean, it's out there, right? It's out there everywhere. Goodness gracious, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I took a 72-day fast and from media and social media, and then I, I make this post when I, before I, I did that fast, my final post, and I didn't even go back to look at how many likes it got. You know, though I was tempted. Wow, did anybody like this final post I did? Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we addicted to stupid stuff, right? Um, that's me holding a Bible. If you didn't, that's my hand, right? Right there. Do you recognize it? Does it look like it? Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. Um, and then I said this. Don't be so quick to believe everything you read unless it's in this book. Right? And the tendency is, right, especially in our, our, our amped up world today, like if I don't like this person and so I hear something bad about that person, yeah, that's true. Man, I'm going to retweet that sucker, right? I'm, I'm going to share that post. It may not be true, right? But you can be quick to believe everything that's in this book. Amen. See, some people today, that they're, they're convinced that their truth is the only truth. And if you don't agree that their truth is the only truth, look out because they're coming for you, right? But I'm here to tell you that they're wrong. God's word and Jesus is the only truth, amen? amen? It'll keep us stable in this crazy world, right? 
Don't, don't, don't get caught by the wisdom of the world, right? It changes, right? It changes. I don't care what century it is, but the word of God, right? The grass withers and it fades. The flowers fall. Opinions change every day, right? But the word of God stands firm forever. That's where you ground yourself. Don't get pulled into this silliness out there. Jesus is the life. That's not a new concept in John, some verses. In him, in him was life, John 1, 4, and that life was the light of men, John 5, 40. You refuse to come to me to have life, John 6, 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life. And before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, he said to her, his sister was freaking out. Lazarus is dead. Wish he'd have been here. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live and even though they die. You see, Jesus is the life. And the good news is that he wants to give you life. He wants to give you his kind of life. Life in all its fullness. But listen, here's the deal. Whenever we, whenever we go to anything else for life, right? Remember Peter said, hey, we're going to hang with you. Where will we go? And why don't we go somewhere else? Well, we're not as wise, right? People today, they look for life and success and power and stuff and relationships and money and pleasure and applause. I'm going to tell you what you already know. Those things have not, they are not, they will not, and they cannot deliver on life. You will hunger, you will thirst again. Here's the bottom line. Jesus' life, you may want to write this down. Jesus' life and everything else is a distraction, right? Jesus' life and everything else is simply a distraction. We're about done. That's my clue, okay? If you've been yawning, leaning out, you can lean in. Cause, and this is like a real about done, not a Steve about done. And then we're still here three hours later, okay? Um, Jesus is the way to God, the truth of God, and life from God. See, Jesus, Jesus is the way to truth and life. He's the truth about the way and about life. And he is the life that's lived in truth and that is lived on the way. And I want to close with this uh, quote from a guy named Thomas Kempis. He was, a, he was a mystic back in the 15th century. Now, I'm not all that big on mystics, you know, but... Uh, I do think they write in a way that is like more poetic and more beautiful than, you know, kind of, you know, linear thinking, logical thinking. And here's what he wrote about John 14, 6. Follow thou me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the invaluable, invaluable way, the infallible way. I am the invaluable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Jesus, we're so grateful that there's a way to get back home. And we know we're not home. We know we're not at that place where our soul has rest and peace. 
Thank you for preparing a place for us so that we can go home. Thank you for being the way to God. Thank you for the truth about God. Because sometimes we can think that because we mess up and fall and stumble that, that you're done with us. But when Jesus walked this earth, he was never done with anybody unless they were done with him. And Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the life that we can have in you. Jesus, help us to see that when we try to build our lives and find lives and things other than you and other than the incredible love you have for us, it's just never going to work. Help us to stop chasing after everything that is already provided by you through the gift of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.